that my last week's topic was, and I just want to talk about uh, the idea of uh, what does it mean that the Torah was given at Sinai. The Rambam discusses this also in the same area. Uh, and here is the problem. Uh, Pirkei Avos tells us, Moshe Kibel Torah Nisinai. Moshe got the whole Torah at Mount Sinai. In other words, after we heard the Ten Commandments, Moshe went up Mount Sinai and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And during those 40 days and 40 nights, God gave him the Torah. We'll see what that means exactly. And then when he comes down after that with the tablets of stone, now of course the tablets of stone didn't have the whole Torah. They only had the Ten Commandments. He smashed them because he saw the golden calf and then he prayed and then he went up a second time and got the Torah again. And he brought down on Yom Kippur is when he brought down the second tablets of stone. So there seems to be a lot of confusion here. Moshe got the whole Torah at Mount Sinai, but he only brought down on the tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. So what did he get? The whole Torah, the Ten Commandments. Moreover, here's the problem. Moshe going up to Mount Sinai is smack in the middle of the Torah. We had left Mitzrayim. Three months later, we get the Torah on Mount Sinai. But a lot of the Torah happens after Mount Sinai, the sin of the spies, which we read about, the sin of Korach that we're going to read about. Did Moshe come down with that? before it happened, like the spies knew they were gonna come back with a bad report. Korach knew he was going to be swallowed up by the ground. How do you understand the idea that Moshe got the whole Torah at Sinai when more than half of the Torah are events that happened after Mount Sinai? Right? So what, what did he get? Moshe got the Torah at Sinai. So. The thing you have to understand is that the word Torah has multiple meanings and it doesn't always mean the same thing in every sentence. Torah can sometimes refer to a particular book or the five books of Moses or a safer Torah. We call that Torah. But Torah also means instruction. That's literally what it means. Torah means the book of instruction. So for example, we sometimes, when we say we learn Torah, we sometimes mean more than the five books of Moses. If a person sits and learns Gemara all day, we say he studies Torah. Well, he wasn't studying Chumash. He was studying Mishnah or Gemara or whatever it is. Uh, so Torah doesn't always mean the five books of Moses. Torah can mean divine instructions. So here is the thing. When Pirkei Avos says... Moshe got the Torah at Sinai. That doesn't mean Moshe got the word for word for word of the five books of Moses. Those things didn't happen yet. But it means God gave Moshe the 613 commandments of the Torah, but the narratives were not written down until they occurred. 
So now let's focus on a very simple question. So when did Moshe write a Sefer Torah? Remember, Moshe did not come down. This is obvious. Moshe did not come down with a Torah scroll. Moshe came down with two tablets upon which you only have Ten Commandments. So when did the first Sefer Torah come into existence? And how was it written? When was it written? So here is what Rashi says. Rashi actually says that at Mount Sinai, before the Ten Commandments, God dictated to Moshe the Torah from Bereshis, from Genesis, up until that point, including the lives of Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, the slavery in Egypt, the redemption from Egypt. Right? So Chumash, Bereshis, and the first half of Shemos, Moshe wrote down before he went up to the mountain. And that's all there was as a Sefer Torah. He then goes up and God tells him over the 40 days all of the 613 commandments. But he doesn't write them down. He comes down only with the 10 commandments. The rest of the Torah is dictated over a 40-year period. That means after each story that happens, God told Moshe, this is what you should write down. So the story of the spies was added to the Torah after the spies committed their sin. The story of Korach was added to the Torah after Korach did his thing. In other words, the Torah was written over a 40-year period. The Torah was not finished until the very last day of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. It was added to... Now again, this does not mean Moshe wrote it. In other words, Moshe wrote it in the sense that Hashem dictated to Moshe what he should write. So every word of the Torah comes from Hashem's dictation. But Hashem's dictation was over a 40-year period, not to be completed until the very last day of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. In fact, there's even a machlokas in the Gemara regarding the last eight verses of the Torah. Because the last eight verses start off with, and Moshe went up to the mountain to die. This is not not, not Mount Sinai, Mount Nebo. And then it's, and Moshe, the servant of God, died, and there never was a prophet like Moshe, etc. Who wrote those last eight verses? Did Moshe write, and Moshe died? <clears throat> so there is a machlokis in the Gemara, an argument in the Gemara. According to one view, the last eight verses of the Torah that describe Moshe's death were not added until Joshua. It was Joshua who wrote them, meaning Moshe did not complete the whole Torah. Yoshua completed it. According to another opinion, <coughs> Moshe, <coughs> excuse me, Moshe wrote them with tears. He wrote about his death ahead of time while he was crying. Okay, but this is an important point. We did not have a complete Sefer Torah until Moshe died. In fact, I don't know if anyone had... I mean, Moshe (coughs) had the Sefer Torah as a work in progress. I'm not sure if B'nai Israel did. It could be that Moshe kept it like a sofa writing a Torah. Moshe kept it in his tent. 
and he added whenever Hashem told him to add. Okay? So, again, I mean, this might be very obvious to you, but I just want to make the point that when people say Moshe got the Torah at Sinai, that does not mean he came down with a safer Torah. He did not come down with a safer Torah. So what did Hashem tell him at Sinai? Hashem told him at Sinai 613 commandments. But even that's a problem. And the reason that's a problem is if you read the Chumash, you actually see that the commandments are given at different times. Just read the Chumash. After this event, Hashem gives certain commandments. After this event, Hashem gives certain commandments. In other words, it's very clear from the narrative of the Torah itself that mitzvos are released in dribs and drabs after special occasions. So after Nadav and Aviyu died on the dedication of the Mishkan and because they drank wine, Hashem gives a commandment, do not drink wine when you go to the Beis HaMikdash, etc. So how do you reconcile that? Meaning, okay, even if we say Hashem didn't give Moshe the narratives, the narratives happened as they happened, and you're going to say Hashem gave Moshe the mitzvos, you still have a problem because the mitzvos themselves seem to be given in different times. Again, over a 40-year period. So the Chazanish says we have to differentiate between when did Hashem tell Moshe the commandment and when was Moshe authorized to tell the Jewish people. You know, one of the most common, probably the most common phrase in the whole Torah that introduces every mitzvah as always Vayedaber Hashem el Moshe Lemor. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying. Now, in English, the word saying is superfluous. Just say it. God spoke to Moshe. Why say Hashem spoke to Moshe saying? So the Gemara explains, saying means I am now giving you permission to say this commandment to the Jewish people. You already knew the commandment at Sinai. So Moshe had all of the commandments at Mount Sinai, but Hashem told him when to reveal it. And the commandments are revealed at different times and in different places for reasons that are best known by God, which means throughout the 40 years in the desert, the Jewish people were not yet keeping the whole Torah because they didn't get the whole Torah yet. They were getting the Torah in a piecemeal fashion. Now, if you take a chumash, we don't have time or opportunity to do this, but if you actually go through the Torah, you can identify when different commandments were given, and usually there'll be a reason that's given for that. Okay, so the way they kept the Torah in year one of the desert is not the same way they kept the Torah in year 20 of the desert because mitzvot were given in the meantime. Now, with this idea that Moshe got everything at Sinai, but he was given authorization at different times to reveal the mitzvot, this can be a key to explain a very, very difficult phenomenon that would otherwise be hard to understand. And that is the fact there are four places in the Torah where Moshe did not know the halacha and he had to ask God for what the halacha was. There are four places where Moshe did not know 
what the law was. Uh, one, we had uh, last week, this is the mitzvah of Pesach Sheni. Now again, what's the mitzvah Pesach Sheni? We know that every year when there was a temple, and in the desert they also did it once, uh, on the 14th of Nisan, the eve of Pesach, a lamb was brought that was slaughtered as a sacrifice, and it was eaten the night of the Seder. The Seder is based on eating the Korban Pesach. You can only bring the Korban Pesach, the Paschal offering, which commemorates God skipping over our houses to smite the firstborn of Egypt, right? You can only eat the Korban Pesach if you're not ritually impure, but if you've come in contact with a dead body and you're impure for seven days, you cannot bring the Korban Pesach till those days pass. So what happened was there were people who were Tameh, they were ritually impure, they were not able to bring the Korban Pesach, they went to Moshe and they complained, why should we be deprived of bringing the Korban Pesach? And Moshe said, hmm, I don't know what the law is. And he asked God, and God says that if somebody is ritually impure when Pesach comes, or somebody is very far away, that, that didn't define the desert, but they were far from Jerusalem, when there would be a temple. So God says, you can bring the Korban Pesach one month later. Instead of the 14th of Nisan, you can bring it the 14th of Eor. Now, you don't have to keep it as Pesach. You're allowed to have bread and everything else, but you could bring the Korban Pesach one month later. And this is called Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. Moshe didn't know the law. He didn't know the law yet to ask God. Now I'm going to ask a very simple question. The ability to bring a Pesach a month later is one of the 613 commandments of the Torah. If Moshe got all of those commandments at Mount Sinai, then why didn't he know? He already was told that commandment by God even before the people complained. So that's one, one question. Again, we'll, we'll talk about the answer in a moment. The second instance of Moshe not knowing was we read about uh, last week uh, on Shabbos, or yesterday, and that is the person who was gathering wood on Shabbos. He was gathering wood on Shabbos, which was prohibited carrying. There was no hayruf, so to speak. And uh, they didn't know what his punishment was for desecrating Shabbos. He was warned not to desecrate Shabbos. So, Moshe, said, Moshe again said, I don't know. He asked God, and God said, the punishment is stoning, that you stone a person to death if they desecrate Shabbos. Now again, uh, do not apply this in contemporary life. Uh, this applies only in very, very rare situations. There has to be a temple, there have to be prophets. He has to have been warned, etc. Uh, and it have to be eyewitnesses. In fact, the Gemara basically says that these death penalties were almost never administered. If a Sanhedrin kills somebody every seven years, and according to one opinion, every 70 years, they were treated as a bloody Sanhedrin. So it's on the books, but it was normally not imposed. But once again, how could Moshe be ignorant of this? If God gave him all of the commandments, then God told him, if you desecrate Shabbos, you can get the death penalty. So once again, how could Moshe not know? The third instance involves a similar type of problem, except instead of desecrating Shabbos, uh, it involves a, 
Jewish man whose father was Egyptian and his mother was Jewish, so he's a Jew. And what he did was he blasphemed the Almighty. He cursed God. And again, Moshe did not know what the punishment was, and he had to ask God, and the punishment for blasphemy, if you were warned, etc., is also that death penalty of stoning. Moshe didn't know. And the fourth example we're going to read in a few weeks, this involved a man called Salafchad, who died in the desert. And Salafchad did not have sons. Salafchad had daughters. And the daughters were claiming that they have the right to inherit the portion of the land of Israel that would go to their father, because uh, even though they're not male, but they're female, they, they should have co-equal rights of inheritance. Salafchad's brothers were arguing that only boys could inherit, not girls, therefore the property should go to them. Moshe didn't know. Do daughters have a right of inheritance? He asked God, and God said, daughters can inherit if there are no sons. If there are sons, the sons inherit, but they must support their sisters until they get married uh, in the manner to which they are accustomed. Uh, but if there are no sons, the daughters become the full inheritance. We're not talking about wills. That's another question. You can make a will and the like, but without a will, this is dialogue. So Bikitzer, without going into all of these examples at great length, there are four instances in the Torah where Moshe needed to go to God. This is after Mount Sinai in order to get an answer. What's the law of the blasphemer? What's the law of the guy who gathers wood on Shabbos? What's the law of bringing a Korban Pesach later if you're in a state of impurity? And what's the law of daughters when there are no sons in terms of inheritance rights? Now my question on all four of those cases is, if Pirkei Avos tells me that Moshe got the Torah at Mount Sinai, even if that means, as I said it means, that does not refer to the narrative stories, that just refers to the commandments, but these are commandments, these are mitzvot, these are laws. How could Moshe not know the laws that he was already told? So one answer is, the Medrash says, that Moshe could have forgotten them, that for various points Moshe lost his temper, and our sages teach us a very important rule, that when you lose your temper, you get angry, you can forget your wisdom. So Moshe had forgotten. That's one approach. But according to the Chazanish, the approach is much more subtle. Moshe knew the law in all four of those cases, but he had not yet been authorized to reveal it to the Jewish people. So Moshe doesn't know what to do. He knows there's a law of a second Pesach. He knows that a desecrator of Shabbos who's properly warned gets stoning. He knows that blasphemy, properly warned, gets stoning. And he knows that daughters inherit when there are no sons. But since Hashem did not yet tell him to reveal it to B'nai Israel, Moshe cannot use the private information that he got until he's given a green light. So he goes to Hashem and says, is it time to give me a green light? And Hashem says yes. So that's actually a beautiful, simple explanation of why Moshe was in a state of doubt. It's not because of ignorance, according to this. It's not because of forgetting. It is because of he needs authorization. Now, I realize that I'm not directly answering the question, why were certain commandments not authorized until certain times? 
This goes back to a more fundamental teaching that Hashem sometimes reserves the privilege of special people to be the agents for the revelation of new truth. So he wanted people who yearned for a second chance to be the vehicle to reveal this mitzvah to the world. He wanted the daughters of Tzolavchad who loved Eretz Yisrael to be the ones who revealed these truths. In other words, there are reasons where Hashem wants secrets to be uncovered by certain meritorious people that they should be the ones that are the vehicles for that divine revelation. But the point of the Chazonish's interpretation is this was not a matter of ignorance. This was a matter of a lack of authorization in the Torah itself. Okay, so uh, now you understand how the Sefer Torah was written and how the mitzvahs were given, and they were given over time. And therefore, if you took a snapshot of the Jewish people in year 10 of the desert, it wouldn't be the same observance as year 20 or year 30, because mitzvahs are being given at various times. In fact, there were mitzvahs that the Jewish people didn't get until the day of Moshe's death, quite literally. Uh, that these were the last mitzvahs of the, of the Torah. Now, on the very last day of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, he completed 13 Torah scrolls because one was put in the ark, which was kept in the tabernacle, and uh, each other one was given to a tribe. Each tribe was given a Torah scroll that was written by Moshe Rabbeinu. And these are the official Torahs. I don't think we have any remnant of it. We don't have any Torah that's been authenticated by Moshe Rabbeinu, but literally Moshe Rabbeinu wrote 13 Torah scrolls. So now let me share with you a very interesting question about that. Uh, those of you that uh, Davin Mincha and Shabbos uh, may remember that after Shemona Esrei, there's a brief paragraph of only three sentences that talk about the righteousness of God's judgment, that we accept upon ourselves that God's judgments are righteous. Now, why do we say it at that point? Because that's normally something you say at a funeral where you say, you know, I accept God's justice as good. So it's brought down in uh, the Midrashim that there were three great righteous people who died Shabbos afternoon. And we remember their deaths. Even though you're not supposed to mourn on Shabbos, but we have a certain bit of sadness Shabbos afternoon when we remember the deaths of three righteous people. Uh, one person is Yosef, who is called Yosef the Righteous, who died Shabbos afternoon. The second is Moshe Rabbeinu, who died Shabbos afternoon. And the third is David HaMelech. Yosef, Moshe, David, all died Shabbos afternoon. And therefore we have three verses accepting upon ourselves the justice of God's ways, even if we don't always understand it. Can't write on Shabbos. Oh, so that's the kasha. So Tosvos in Menachos asks Akasha, how can we say that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote 13 Torah scrolls, or finished 13 Torah scrolls, on the day that he died? The day that he died was Shabbos. Moshe's not allowed to write on Shabbos. Right? So it's a contradiction. You, how can you say both things? He dies on Shabbos, and he wrote 13 Torah scrolls. 
That's impossible. It's a contradiction. So Tosos gives a really good answer. Tosos's answer is that since by definition the writing of the Torah scrolls must have been supernatural, it must have been miraculous, because how can you write 13 Torah scrolls in one day? That's impossible. It must have been through a miracle. So Tosva says a chiddush, a chiddush is a new thought in halacha, that any malacha that you do through miraculous supernatural processes is not a desecration of Shabbos. The Torah prohibits malacha only in natural ways and not in miracle ways. So this is good, this is good for you to know in case you were thinking after leaving my note to go to Hogwarts and uh, you know, Harry Potter school and you were thinking, oh, isn't there going to be a problem with Shabbos? So according to Tosvos, uh, there's no problem with Shabbos. You're allowed to do magic. Of course, magic may be a general prohibition, though. <laughs> that's another issue. But at least in terms of Chilol Shabbos, that which you do by supernatural means is not considered to be uh, prohibited Because on Shabbos. part of that, that if, if it's a miracle, it's not creative activity by you. Yeah, that, that could very... Like, you're yeah. not doing anything anymore. Right, that, that could very well be the explanation yeah. of it. It's not really your action at all. It's quite literally an act of God. Although God also rests on Shabbos, but okay. Um, of course, my question is that the way I describe the process, it's not necessarily miraculous because Moshe did not write 13 Torah scrolls from the very beginning, meaning he just had to finish it, meaning the Torah had been written over 40 years. So by the last day of his death, he only had to add like 10 verses. So multiply 10 verses by 13 Sifrei Torah. I mean, it's a lot of writing, but it's, it's not supernatural. In other words, if you understand that the only thing Moshe had to do was finish 13 Torah scrolls, that's not necessarily supernatural. To write from the beginning 13 Torah scrolls, that would have been an ace, but the way we described it, uh, he had been writing the Torah scroll throughout the 40... Well, actually, I, I, actually, no, I, I stand corrected because no, I, yeah, I, I think, I think Tosis does have a good point because the scroll that Moshe had written was only one scroll. He was not writing 13 scrolls over 40 years. In other words, one scroll might almost be finished, but the other 12 were from scratch. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So if they were from scratch, that would be a miracle for them. In other words, there was only one Torah scroll for the 40 years that was not uh, yet... 13 because he was not given the commandment to write for the other tribes until the last day of his life. Okay, so that's the uh, idea of how the Torah was written. Now, the Rambam, as you know, has developed a theology of Judaism, the theological principles of Judaism that are called the 13 principles of faith. Now, you have to understand something. In our authoritative sources, like the Talmud or whatever, there is no list of 13 principles of faith. The Rambam compiled this list by looking at different sources and determining what was fundamental to Jewish belief. There's one God, the God is not a body, God uh, has no beginning and no end, things like that. Uh, and these are uh, fundamental principles, meaning these are the theology of Judaism. Uh, every sitter has, at the end of the morning uh, prayers, 
uh, a whole section called Ani Mamin Be'emun Shalema. I believe in perfect faith. That, and it goes through the Rambam's 13 principles. The Rambam himself did not write the Ani Mamin. The Ani Mamin is an anonymous person who adapted the Rambam's 13 principles to this formula of belief, Ani Mamin. Uh, some of you might be familiar with a song that many shows sing Friday night, uh, Yigdal. And some, some say it, actually some people say it every day in the sitter. Yigdal Elohim Chai, I glorify the living God. Yigdal Elohim Chai. Uh, if you look at Yigdal somewhat carefully, you will see that Yigdal actually uh, is a restatement of the 13 principles of faith in poetic form. Again, it's not from the Rambam, but it's an adaptation based on the Rambam. So I want to focus now, because this will be connected to what we're talking about, I want to focus on one of the Rambam's fundamental principles of the 13, and that is what is called the immutability of the Torah. Immutability means non-changeability of the Torah that the Torah is permanent and unchanging and will never be superseded by another prophecy or another revelation. Now, this is extremely important uh, in the polemic against Christianity and Islam. Because keep in mind, that Christianity and Islam are very different than atheism, right? Atheists say, ah, you know, Sinai never happened. Both Christianity and Islam both say God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. They say that happened. That happened. But what is their argument? Their argument is that because of the sins of the Jewish people or whatever the reason was, God superseded his revelation and covenant with the Jewish people and had a greater prophet or a greater spiritual entity than Moses, whether it be Jesus or Mohammed, who gave a new revelation that basically said the Torah as Torah is no longer binding. There's a new testament instead of an old testament. Right? The word new is very intentional here. New means, in fact, this, is, this goes by the word supersessionism. Supersessionism, which is mainly used in Christianity, I mean, Islam does not use that word, but it's the same idea. Supersessionism means, yeah, God did give the Torah to the Jews, but it got superseded by a later revelation. Maimonides is telling us, without proving it at this point, that this is, a, this is contrary to a basic fundamental principle in Judaism called the immutability of the Torah, the Torah will not change. Now, this means a lot of things. Even if you have a prophet who does miracles, a prophet does miracles, and he tells you, oh, God told me you're not supposed to keep Shabbos on Saturday anymore, keep it on Sunday, he is called a false prophet. We don't believe him. There is nothing he can do that can supersede the Torah. In fact, this is based on the Pasuk in the Torah. Lo vashamayimhi, the Torah is not in heaven. In fact, there's a famous story in the Gemara. I've mentioned here, I think I've mentioned it in my note more than once. 
about rabbis were arguing over a halakhic question. And a voice from heaven said, the law is like this rabbi, even though a majority of the rabbis disagreed with him. And the rabbis of the majority said to God, keep out of this God. You yourself said the Torah is not in heaven. And you told us how we resolve arguments by a majority vote. That's it. You yourself, God, are bound by the Torah. You cannot change the Torah. You cannot change the rules. Talk about nobody is above the law, right? People debate in politics. Is anybody above the law? Well, even God is not above the law. God gave the law. God gave the Torah. God is bound by the laws of the Torah. Right? So that's called lo bashamayimhi and the idea that a prophet cannot change the Torah, the immutability, the permanence of the Torah, the Torah will never change, can never change, because Moshe Rabbeinu is the greatest and most definitive of all of Hashem's prophets. So that's the Rambam's Ikar. Now, let me introduce you to another book. The Rambam formulated 13 principles of faith in which he declared that if a Jew does not believe in all of these 13 principles, he might be a Jew because he was born a Jew, so of course you're a Jew, but he's not part of the Jewish religion. He is not practicing the Jewish religion. See that this is an important difference. If a person believes the 13 principles, even if he's not observant, he is still part of the Jewish faith community. But Maimonides took a very strong position that if he rejects one of the 13 principles, he is not, again, you're, you're Jewish if you're born Jewish, that's true, but you're not part of the faith community itself. Now, there was another philosopher around 200 years after Maimonides, and his name was Rav Yosef Albo, and he lived in Spain and Italy, and he took the position that Maimonides is confusing what are called roots, roots, Ikar, Ikar means fundamentals, but also means a root. And what are shoresh, and what is called a branch. But Yosef Albo said, there's only three fundamental principles of Judaism, not 13. And the three principles that, so Maimonides had 13, Rav Albo had only three. And the three, in fact, Rav Albo wrote a book describing these three principles. The book is called Sefer Karim, the book of fundamental principles, or the book of roots. Ikar and Shorish are the same uh, meaning, root. And what are his three principles? Number one, Mitziyot Hashem, that there is one God who created heaven and earth. You've got to believe in God. If you don't believe in God, you can't be a member of the Jewish religion. Right? Number two, that God rewards good and punishes evil, meaning God is concerned with virtue. God didn't just create the world and then leave it alone, but he is concerned with virtuous behavior and non-virtuous behavior. And the third fundamental principle is divine revelation that God revealed the Torah at Sinai and in the 40 years of the desert. Now, I want to give you some, some examples about the difference between Maimonides' approach and Rav Yesef Albo's approach. You understand this? 
Maimonides lists in his 12th and 13th principle. Principle 12 is, I must believe in the coming, this is actually set to music, I must believe in the coming of a Mashiach, which we'll talk about next week. And even though he delay, I will wait for him every day, by I will wait for him every day. So, so principle 12 is belief in Mashiach. Principle 13 is belief in eventual resurrection of the dead. That the physical body will come back with the Neshama at some point. We'll talk next week about it, but this is after Mashiach. Some point in the Messianic era, there will be the final stage, which is now, according to the Rambam, what if I have the following attitude? I believe in God. I believe in Torah. But I don't believe the body will come back to life because the most important thing is the soul. I believe the soul will be in Olam Abba. I don't believe in resurrection of the dead. Or what if somebody says, I believe in God. I believe in Torah. I do mitzvahs. But I don't see the need for a flesh and blood Mashiach. I mean, who cares? Why do I need a Mashiach? The main thing is to be connected to God in Olam Haba. So what if a person had those beliefs? So according to Maimonides, they would be classified as a heretic. According to Maimonides, they would be an apichorus, the term would be, because they're denying a fundamental principle. According to Rav Yosef Albo, he classifies things differently. He says, listen, Mashiach and resurrection are simply branches that come out of the principle of reward and punishment. These are the different ways God could reward or punish you. So as long as I believe there is some system of reward and punishment, even if I don't believe in Mashiach or resurrection of the dead, I may be mistaken, but I'm not heretical. Now, this is also a very important point. Some people say, oh, Rav Yosef Albu doesn't believe in Mashiach. Or Rav Yosef Albu doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Rav Yosef Albu believes in everything the Rambam believes in. It's only a question of classification. What the Rambam would call heretical, Rav Yosef Albu would call mistaken. In other words, if I don't believe in any reward and punishment, if I believe when you die, you die, and that's it, I would be a heretic, even like Rav Yosef Alba. But if I believe that God does have reward and punishment system, but I don't believe in Mashiach and Tachiyah Rav Alba isn't saying that's a true belief. It's a false belief. But his point is, not every false belief is heresy or the like. Right? So this is important because a lot of people misunderstand what Rivaldo is doing. Rivaldo is not disputing the substance of Maimonides' principles. Rivaldo is disputing whether they should be called fundamental principles, roots, or whether they should be called branches. Many things the Rambam calls a root, Rivaldo says is a branch. And if you mess up on a branch, you haven't dislodged yourself from being rooted. Let me give you another example that's even more dramatic. 
corporality. Corporality is simply a fancy word. Does God have a physical body? You know, can God you know, make himself into a human image if he wants? According to the Rambam, it is a fundamental principle of Judaism that God is incorporeal, that God has no physical body, God has no shape, uh, and if you believe that God can have physicality, you are a heretic, you are an idolater, essentially. Uh, you are not, again, you're Jewish if you're born Jewish, but you are not practicing the Jewish belief if you believe God has a body. Now, this is in spite of the fact, you understand, that many, many biblical verses do speak of God in physical terms. Right? We talk about the hand of God. Right? We talk about the eyes of God. We talk about the ears of God. What does the Rambam say? Those are metaphors. When God does something, we say it's the hand of God. But God does not have a hand. Rav Albo says, if I in good faith interpret biblical verses literally, and I think God has a hand, God has a long white beard, I might be mistaken. Again, let me, let me, let me be clear. Ravalbo agrees with the Rambam that God does not have physicality. But he says, if somebody made a mistake, they're not heretical. They believe in God. They just made a mistake about what God is, etc. That is not fatal. So this is an important difference. The difference is not what they agree upon. Ravalbo and the Rambam both agree on the same things. But Ravalbo says... Many aspects of what the Rambam calls fundamental are really what you call derivative, secondary principles, and they will not make you a heretic if you disbelieve in them, even though you are, you are mistaken. Yeah? Seems such an interesting uh, Rambam came out with it first, right? That's correct. Rambam was first. So it's such an interesting type of composition because... Like, I don't really know how to explain this, but like the theology or not to believe, for some reason I feel like it's such a Christian thing because when they came out with Christianity, that's what their like their whole thing was. You don't have to do mitzvahs, but you have to believe this and this and this. So yeah. it's just an interesting concept. No, you're hundred percent. You're actually hundred percent correct, and this is a very, very interesting idea, uh, because if you if you go back to our sources, go back to the Talmud, go back to the Medrash, you often do not find statements of principles of belief, and it was said, many people say as a criticism of the Rambam, that Judaism is much more concerned with your actions and your behaviors than with your actual beliefs. Now, of course. Uh, you have to believe in something. But if you believe in God, and actually Ravalbo is a good list. If you believe in God and the Torah, you know, the specifics, there could be different opinions. So many are critical of the Rambam. Many felt that... The, now, granted, the Rambam probably did not get it from Christian belief, but if you are correct, it is kind of a Christian notion of emphasizing theology over action and practice. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, Judaism is about deed, not creed. Well, all I can tell you is, 
that may be true, but the Rambam would not agree with it. <laughs> the Rambam absolutely, so you are correct, the Rambam elevated the illogical beliefs to an extreme importance, and what Ravalbo is basically doing is, Ravalbo is simplifying the theology. Ravalbo is basically saying, yeah, there are some things you've got to believe, but you don't have to know, you don't have to believe all of the details of this. Again, it is, it is true, in other words, Moshiach is part of our story, etc., but it's not a fundamental in the sense that you are um, a heretic if you don't fully understand all of the implications. So you are actually correct that, that in an ultimate sense, the machlokas between Rav Albo and the Rambam is how important detailed theological dogma is in the formulation of Jewish identity. I would say, too, it's part of the Rambam's larger understanding that even the purpose of mitzvos is to perfect us intellectually. So according to the Rambam, therefore, if you don't have the right ideas, then your mitzvos are of much lesser value. And he was looking at mitzvos as a means to a certain intellectual attainment rather than things that are valuable in and of themselves. So you are correct. There is part of a larger picture that's going on here. Now, the reason I bring this up is that Ravalbo and the Rambam uh, debate on this notion of immutability of the Torah. In other words, the Rambam says, the Torah will never change. And if you believe the Torah will change, you are a heretic. The Torah cannot change. So Ravalbo says, huh, is that true? He brings up two scenarios where there were some very significant, either there were or there will be, you'll see, some very significant changes in the Torah. The first is the alphabet. Uh, all of you are familiar with the Hebrew alphabet, okay? Uh, I mean the block, not the script, but you know the way the, way the Torah is written, or any, any safer. Uh, but you know, there was an older Hebrew script that you can see in dictionaries. It's called Kitav Ivri. In other words, uh, the halacha, the uh, term for the Hebrew alphabet, strangely enough, is, is called Kesav Ashuris, which literally means Assyrian writing. I'll explain what, what that means. Uh, and that's our Hebrew alphabet. Kesav Ivri is an older thing that you can, that you can still find it on inscriptions. It kind of looks like hieroglyphics a little bit. And in a lot of Hebrew dictionaries, uh, when they do the letter Aleph, side by side, they'll have the old Hebrew version of it. You're familiar, you've seen Kitzhav Ivri? Yeah, sea scrolls are written in it. Yeah, there are a lot of inscriptions like that. So the Gemara says in Sanhedrin that when God gave the Torah to Moshe, it was in the old Hebrew script. And only in the days of Ezra, the beginning of the second temple, after the destruction of the first temple, that was more than a thousand years later, Ezra changed the writing through prophecy and he used the sacred script that we have. Sir so Alvalbo says, now granted, that's not a change in the laws of the Torah, but it's a change in the Torah. The Torah changed from Kitab Ivri to Kitab Ashuris. How can you say things can't change by prophecy? Ezra, Ezra literally changed the alphabet. 
by prophecy. Right? He didn't do it on his own, but, but you're telling me that even a prophet can't make those changes. Right? That's one question Rav Albo asks, you know, against the Rambam's contention that nothing can ever change. And the other thing he asks from is a verse in the book of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu. Now, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, was the prophet who actually lived during the destruction of the first temple. He actually was the Navi. That the book of Lamentations that we read on the 9th of Av, which mourns the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, was written by Jeremiah the prophet, uh, who experienced this. So Jeremiah says, in the name of God, in the name of God, behold, days are coming where you will no longer say, blessed is the God who took me out of Egypt, but instead you will say, blessed is the God who took me out of Babylonia, Persia, and all the other countries. In other words, Yermiyahu is trying to give a a comfort prophecy, and he's saying, there will come a time where you'll no longer be praising Hashem because he took you out of Mitzrayim, but rather there'll be a messianic redemption that's going to be so much more greater that instead of saying, Baruch Hashem who took us out of Mitzrayim, you're going to say, Baruch Hashem who took us out of that later goes. Now, here's the thing. There is a mitzvah in the Torah twice a day to remember that God took us out of Mitzrayim. This is called Zechiras Yitzias Mitzrayim. What does that mean? Remembering the exodus from Egypt. In the third paragraph of the Shema, so there's one Pasuk that is fulfilling this mitzvah. I am Hashem, your God. Who took you out of Egypt. So if you look at the Siddur, the Siddur may say, have intention to fulfill the mitzvah to remember the exodus. So that's a mitzvah in the Torah. Remember, remember means verbally, not just in your head. Verbally, remember the exodus. So God says, morning and night, remember the exodus. But what does Yirmiyahu say? When Mashiach comes, you will no longer thank God for the exodus you will thank God for the messianic redemptions that will be so greater, so much greater. So what is Yirmiyot doing? He is giving you a prophecy that when Mashiach comes, a mitzvah will cease to exist. Namely, the mitzvah of thanking God for the Exodus, which is a mitzvah right now. So Ravalbo's point is, that the assumption of the Rambam that the Torah is immutable, permanent, unchanging, and if you believe it's subject to any type of change, that is heresy and a false belief, Ravalbo says, I have two proofs against your position. Proof number one, Ezra changing the script of the Torah from old Kesav Ivri to our Kesav Ashuras, and Ezra was in the time of the second temple, and second is Jeremiah's statement 
that when Mashiach comes, we will no longer thank Hashem for taking us out of Mitzrayim. We will thank Hashem for the Messianic redemption. Well, that is changing a mitzvah. The mitzvah was to thank Hashem for Yitziat Mitzrayim. So these are two questions, uh, or, well, again, these are two arguments that Ravalbo asserts against the position of the Rambam. Yeah. So the Torah that we have now doesn't look like the Torah that they have then? You open up the Torah? Yes, so, so, so although I'm, I'm going to explain this a little bit, but yes, the simple meaning of the statement is that uh, the Torah that Moshe wrote, the 13 Torahs that Moshe wrote, were in the old Hebrew script. How could Ezra just go in? Yeah, so the Gemara explains that Ezra based this on uh, Drusha. He looked at the words Mishnah Torah, the repetition of the Torah, uh, uh, that Moshe was supposed to uh, repeat the Torah, but Mishnah can also mean change, that he saw in the word Mishnah Torah that there would be a reason to change the writing later. I'll discuss why he did it, but, but he saw in the Torah itself an authorization for this. Let me mention a third proof, which I don't remember if Rivaldo uses or doesn't use. Uh, that is, you know, when a person dies, so we don't bury them in their fancy clothes, but everyone gets buried the same way, in a simple white, men and women, uh, it's a different type of garment, but a simple white shroud, and these are called tachrichen, very simple white burial shrouds, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. In fact, there's a story um, uh, that I like a lot, but, but I'm told the story is false, so I need to always say the story is, they, the family says it didn't happen, but I'll tell you the story anyway, because it's a good story. There was a very, very wealthy and generous philanthropist, from a religious philanthropist in Toronto, the Reichman family, or Paul Reichman, and when Paul Reichman died, uh, he left an instruction for his children that when you go to the Hevra Kadisha to make burial instructions, tell them I want to be buried in my fa favorite black Shabbos socks. And they didn't understand you know, why would he care about it, but they went to the Hevra Kadisha and they said, uh, our father wants to wear these socks. And they said, no. They said, there's no exceptions. Everybody gets buried in Tachrichim. You don't get to wear other clothes. The Jewish funerals do not allow anything beyond the Tachrichim. And they begged, and they said, our father was such a tzaddik and so generous, and such a balstaka, surely you could give in to him. And they said, no, we can't give in to him. So the kids were heartbroken. This was their father's last request, and they didn't, weren't able to do it. Anyway, there was another letter he left them to be opened after Shiva. So they opened the letter after Shiva, and the letter says, I assume you asked the Hebra Kedisha to bury me in my socks, and I assume they said no. And I want you to know that the lesson is, no matter how much you have in this world, when you leave the world, you can't even take a pair of socks with you. And that's a lesson that we live to share our money and to give staka. We don't live to accumulate because you take nothing with you. Now there's the whole story, was a story just to give Musser give a, a instruction to his children. That, that's the old saying. It's a Yiddish saying. Uh, the only thing you take is what you give and uh, what you, uh, in other words, what you give in the world, your tzedakah, is what you take 
And what you take from the world is what you give back because anything you take from the world, you're not going to take with you. So what you take, you wind up giving away and what you give away is what you wind up taking with you. Right? The opposite of, of what you think. Okay. So anyway, the Gemara discusses the following question. Are you allowed to bury a dead body in burial shrouds that are shotness? Again, this would never happen today, but it's a theoretical question. What's shotness? You're not allowed to wear wool and linen together that are, by the way, only if they're sewn together, just in case you may not know. If I wear a linen shirt, and a woolen sweater over my linen shirt, even though they're touching each other, that's not shotness, that's okay. You can wear two different articles of clothing. One is woolen, one is linen. In order to have a prohibition of shotness, they have to be sewn together in some way. But for whatever the reason, if wool and linen are sewn together, you are not allowed to wear that garment. That is what is called shotness. In fact, uh, to this day, there are, there's a profession uh, within Judaism called the shotness te uh, tester, that if you buy a, a new jacket or a new suit or a new dress, um, you know, you get it checked and uh, to see if there's a mixture of wool and linen. Sometimes labels are not always reliable because if the percentages of something are very low, they don't have to be listed on a label. So uh, there are chemical tests that a shotness tester can put it under a microscope and identify certain fibers or also do a chemical tests like dyeing and, and, and the like. So uh, again, I'm, maybe some other time I'll give a share about shotness, but it's something to be aware of. Uh, there are shotness lists, certain articles, articles of clothing are not a problem, right? So you don't have to get them tested. Certain are. Sometimes it depends what country it comes from. So for example, in men's suits at least, uh, an Italian suit is more likely to have shotness than an American suit, because in America they'll use polyester, in Italy they'll use you know, real wool and linen, and because you know, artificial fibers are cheaper than natural, so a lot of cheaper suits will not be shotness, and maybe more expensive suits might be shotness, right? So you've got to be aware of this. Okay, so the Gemara discusses, okay, so when I'm alive, I'm not allowed to wear shotness, granted. But can I put shotness on a dead body? He's dead, right? Once a person's dead, they don't have to keep mitzvahs anymore, right? So the Gemara says, it all depends on whether the mitzvahs are gonna be kept after resurrection of the dead. Meaning, when the dead people come back alive, will there still be mitzvahs? If there'll still be mitzvahs, you can't bury them in shotness because they'll wind up wearing shotness when they come back. If there won't be mitzvahs, then you could because when they get alive again, there'll be no problem. In other words, what is the Gemara discussing? The Gemara is discussing, will the Torah be binding after the dead people come back to life again? It's a discussion. It's an argument. Right? It's discussed. But the question is, how could there be such a discussion? If, if the Torah is intended to be permanent and unchangeable, then of course the Torah will still be in effect when there's resurrection of the dead. How could it be a debatable question if this is a fundamental article of faith?
Okay? So essentially, uh, what we what to summarize, there are three, right? The Rambam adopts this principle called the immutability, the unchangeability of the Torah, no matter what. And we have three arguments against it. Argument one is Ezra changing the script from Ivri to Ashuris. Argument number two is Jeremiah the prophet, Yermio Hanavi, who says when Mashiach comes, we will no longer thank Hashem for the Exodus, we will thank Hashem for the Messianic redemption instead. And that is replacing the mitzvah of the Torah to remember the Exodus of Mitzrayim, from Mitzrayim, day and night. And number three, the fact that the Gemara seems to consider it a debatable question, whichever way it comes out, but it's a debatable question, whether the mitzvahs are going to be in effect after the resurrection in terms of shatness on a, on a dead body. Uh, according to the Rambam, how could there ever be such a question if the Torah is eternal? By definition, it's going to survive resurrection of the, of the dead. Right? So these are questions on the Rambam's position. Uh, by the way, another uh, question you could ask, which is really just a si- totally side point, but I'll, I'll mention it, is, you know, um, this is probably more relevant for men, but I, there's some relevant for women as well. You know, there is a concept in halacha that you're not supposed to do certain mitzvot directly in front of a dead body or a grave. Uh, in the case of men, it would mean that men should not wear tefillin within four cubits, between six and eight feet of a grave. If you have sitters out, if a man has sitters out, he should put the sitters in, he should not show his sitters who wear a talus within four amos, and should not even learn Torah or daven. Now, there's an interesting question about Kivrei Tzadikim, etc., but technically, when you daven or learn Torah, it should be at a distance of four Amos from a grave. And the reason is because loeg larash. Loeg larash is a phrase that means you're making fun of a poor person. You don't mock a poor person. Right? You don't mock a disabled person by uh, running around, etc. And since a dead body cannot do the commandments and the neshama feels pain at its inability to do commandments, you don't parade commandments in front of a dead body because that is called making fun of a poor person. Uh, so some ask the question, which I'm not going to answer, that how can you put shotness on a dead body even if the mitzvahs are not going to come back when the resurrection comes? But aren't you making fun of them by saying, ah, you don't have shotness anymore, you don't have to worry about it anymore? Shouldn't it be the same principle? Uh, another question people ask, and again, this, this part is really for men, you know, uh, on, on top of the burial shrouds, right, the dead body is dressed in white shrouds, but then, if it's a man, he wears a talus. They put a talus over him. And the minog is that we make the talus puzzle, meaning, say, we cut off one corner of the tzitzis. So it's not four corners, meaning it's not four squared corners. You cut it at an angle, whatever it would be. 
to show that he no longer has the mitzvah of tzitzis. So the question is, isn't that making fun of him? You're making fun of a person by saying, oh, you don't need tzitzis anymore, and it's not important. So because of this, there were certain great gedolim who actually left an instruction that they should be buried with a kosher talus, and nothing should be cut. And the two gedolim that I know of was the Vilna Gaon left such an instruction, and uh, another great, uh, very pious person, Yesod Rishorisho Avoda. And the stories are a little different, how it didn't, both of them didn't get their way, but the story is a little different how. The Vilna Gaon died, Cholomoed Sukkot, the Vilna Gaon died during Sukkot. Now, he was very ill from Rosh Hashanah, and the student that was attending him all the time was with him 24 hours a day, but he thought he would go home and visit his parents for Sukkot. So he left just for two days to visit his parents, and of course, as, as often is the case, exactly when he's gone, the Vilna Gaon gets sick, the Vilna Gaon dies, he hears about it, he rushes back at the funeral. And uh, the Chevra Kadisha was not aware of the Vilna Gaon's instruction, because he only told his disciples, and they had already cut his talus and made it possible. So he actually stopped the funeral. He said, stop, 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 before you bury, you have to comply with the Vilna Gaon's request that he be buried in a kosher talus. So the Basin of Vilna stopped the funeral to debate the halacha. Should we accede to his request? Should we not accede to his request? And they decided at the end that since HaKadosh Baruch Hu caused that we didn't get the news till after we cut the talus already, that's a sign from heaven that we are not supposed to deviate from the minhag. So that's the story with the Vilna Gaon. There was another great, great tzaddik, the Yesod Rishorisho Avoda, Rabbi Lachzander Ziskind of Haradna, who left a similar instruction. And here they did bury him with a kosher talus. But they were lowering his body without a coffin. Have you ever seen that here? They actually don't, don't bury you in a coffin. They lower the body directly in the ground. And as they were lowering, the corner of his talus got caught on a nail and it tore off. So that's also God decreed that one should not deviate. Um, little story about the Vilna Gaon. Uh, I don't know how conversant you are with Chabad history, as, as, but you know, those, of, those of you who know the history know that the Vilna Gaon, uh, the, 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 the Alter Rebbe very much wanted to meet with the Vilna Gaon. The Vilna Gaon had different problems with Hasidus in the early years, and uh, the Alter Rebbe wanted to talk to the Vilna Gaon, and the Vilna Gaon, for whatever reason, did not want to meet him. So this was a meeting that never took place. Uh, and uh, when the Vilna Gaon died, there were some Hasidim that were rejoicing because they said, oh, our enemy is gone. And the Alter Rebbe was extremely upset. He said that whatever our disagreements, the Vilna Gaon was uh, holy and righteous. And then he told his Hasidim, and don't think this is going to benefit us because when he's in Shemayim, he'll be a much po more powerful adversary uh, than uh, on earth. So don't think you're, getting, you're gaining anything uh, from his loss. But the Alter Rebbe was very, very adamant that uh, the Vilna Gaon uh, had to be honored, had to be respected, and uh, he was very angry with any Hasidim that would mock the Vilna Gaon. So the story goes, I think the Alter Rebbe used to tell this story. I, I don't want to say for sure in his name, but I think, I think it was from the Alter Rebbe himself that when the Vilna Gaon was brought to, uh, to Shemayim, 
So uh, the meat, you know, the devil's advocate, you know, the Mida Sadin said he has no avarice except for the fact that he never heard a Hasidish mimer. He never heard a mimer of a Rebbe, and this is his big Avera. So the Vilna God was given a choice. Uh, he could go like one minute to Gehenim, or you'd have to hear a Hasidic mimer. He had a choice of which way you'd want to go. So the Vilna God chose the one minute in Gehenim. Yeah. <laughs> the other Rebbe used to tell the story. So as he's going to Gehenim, like all of the Torah that he learned, like the billions of pages become a wall so he can't go to Gehenna either. They can't bring him there. It blocks the way. So the Alter Rebbe says, you see, he got out of Gehenna and he got out of Hasidic Maimur. He got out of both. Uh, he got out of both, both things. That's what a great a person to build a gun was. Anyway, it's, it is interesting, though, that um, little, little Chabad gossip here. For many, many years, Chabad had a little bit of a negative relationship with the Vilna Gun because the Vilna Gun refused to to, to uh, meet with the Alter Rebbe. But the Rebbe, in his Sichais, going back around 40 years ago, 45 years ago, started quoting the Vilna Gaon. And when he started quoting the Vilna Gaon, many of the older Hasidim were absolutely shocked because like for 100 years, the Vilna Gaon would not be mentioned in a Sicha or a Mimer. But they say the Rebbe rehabilitated the Vilna Gaon, he brought him back in, and uh, now it's kind of Ruch uh, Hashem. There is a Shalom, uh, which among, again, and among the Misnadim, uh, the Alter Rebbe is quoted a lot, and among the Hasidim, the Vilna Gaon is quoted a lot. So that's a good thing when uh, we bring everybody together. We learn from it from all the great, all the great people. So that was an unusual thing. You have to know that the Rebbe was a little, this, this created some controversy in Chabad when the Rebbe started uh, bringing in the Vilna Gaon. But, uh, but uh, until him, I think the other... Uh, the Siyam did not, uh, did not uh, bring in the Vilagon for many, 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 many years. Okay. Um, so, okay, so that's, just, that, that's what I want to show you. Now, let me give you a little background, though, a little backstory on why Ezra changed the, the writing. Let, let me give you the story of that a little bit. That is, uh, you might remember in the Sefer Daniel, the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel was in Babylonia uh, before the Chorban. And uh, the king who destroyed the base of Mikdash was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had a son, Avil Marudach. And uh, Avil Marudach had a son, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar wanted to celebrate the ultimate vanquishing of the Jewish nation. And he brought out all the utensils of the base of Mikdash to make a huge, huge party. This is Belshazzar king of Babylonia. And as he is rejoicing, drinking, eating with the kalim of the base of Mikdash, imagine the scary scene. All of a sudden, a giant hand comes down from the sky and writes, this is called handwriting on the wall, writes on the wall four Aramaic, not Hebrew words, Aramaic words. Mene, mene, you have been counted and recounted. Takal, your deeds are weighed. Uparsin, and your empire shall be given to the Persians because Belshazzar was conquered by the Persians. Handwriting on the wall. Now the language is Aramaic. Aramaic was actually the language of Babylonia. That's, that was the spoken language. But it says nobody was able to read it. 
Because this word, this was the Hebrew alphabet that even the Jewish people didn't know. This was our Hebrew alphabet that was revealed from heaven. Daniel, with Ruach HaKodesh, was able to decipher it. So the reason why our Hebrew alphabet is called Assyrian writing, this is very important, is not because it's Assyrian. It is heavenly. It is the heavenly script by which God created heaven and earth. In fact, those of you that uh, learn uh, the Chelech Beis of Tanya, Shari Yichud Viamuna, the Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe discusses how the spiritual energies of creation go through the letters of the Aleph Beis. Okay, he discusses it that way. So, really, when Ezra made this the writing, he was not taking Assyrian writing and making it uh, our Torah. He saw in the handwriting on the wall Hashem's revelation that this should be the writing of the Torah. That's why God is revealing it. Now, here's another point. According to some commentaries, the original writing on the first luchos, the first tablets, actually were in the Kesavashuras, which is the holiest script. But do you remember when Moshe comes down and he sees the golden calf and he smashed the luchos? There is a medrash that says the letters flew off the luchos and the luchos were too heavy for him to carry and they dropped of their own accord. It's the second Luchos and the Torah that Moshe wrote, that's Ksavivri. So when Ezra changed the writing, what he really was doing was, he was going back to the original writing that Hashem put on the first Luchos. You see? Uh, because uh, that writing was always holy. This is an important point to know because a lot of times, you know, a university professor might go over to you and say, oh, you know, your Hebrew alphabet is only Assyrian writing uh, and, the, and your Gemara itself says that. But you understand, it's called Assyrian only because we rediscovered it in Babylonia, Assyria. Those are interchangeable names. But in point of fact, it is a heavenly writing and it was even the writing of the first Luchos. Okay? Yes? Um, Daniel was the one who saw the writing and... Yes, so, so, yeah, yes, so, right. So, Daniel is the one that was able to ascertain the writing through prophecy. And Ezra, a short time afterwards, that's almost the same time, said that this revelation is a sign from God that he wants us to go back to that first level of holiness that we had lost. And that's the meaning of, of the change. In fact, that might answer... Ravalbo's question. Ravalbo asked the question, how can you say the Torah never changes? Uh, this was a change. The answer is, it's not really a change. It's bringing it back to what it originally was. This itself would be an answer uh, to Ravalbo's question from the changing of the, changing of the writing. But still, you are correct. If you, would, if you would look at Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah scrolls, they would be in a different writing. That, that, that is correct. 
Okay? Alrighty, so maybe we'll stop here. You all have a good week and uh, take care.